And uh, this morning, uh, Paul is going to be in the city of Corinth. Uh, we're going to read Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. Listen then to the word of God. After Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontiff, recently come from Italy and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was on the, of the same trade, stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul has, was accompanied uh, with Excuse me, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent for now I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house went next door, was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthian hear, the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you and harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have a reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of question about the words and names and your own law, so see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized so Sothenes and the ruler of the synagogue and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and heavenly father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word this morning. Your word is living and active. And so we trust and pray that you have things in here for each and every one of us, things that we need to hear, things that need to correct us, rebuke us, challenge us, things that maybe uh, will encourage us, strengthen us, feed us. Oh, Lord, this is your word and it flows from your mouth. And so, Lord, we trust that that these things are coming from you. We pray that you would give me uh, the words to say and you would use the Holy Spirit to honor uh, and exalt your name through your word. In your precious name, we pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but but sometimes uh, the idea of going and talking to someone about Jesus can be uh, a little bit intimidating, can be a little bit scary. 
You can go over in your mind a hundred different times what what to say. And you still have to to cross that sort of first bridge. You still have to to go and initiate the conversation. When we lived in in the Poconos, uh, there was a a man who would often uh, bring his children to our bus stop. His kids were were about the same age as some of my kids. And, you know, we had a we had a friendship and we hit it off uh, fairly well. Uh, it was pretty evident just in the way he lived his life uh, that he wasn't uh, a Christian. Um, uh, he often wore a Steelers jacket. Not that that has anything to do with being a Christian, but it just sticks out in my mind that, that he was often there. He was a, a football fan. He was just a regular guy. We had a lot uh, in common. We'd talk, we'd talk sports. Uh, he'd often be smoking at the bus stop, which, which obviously really wasn't my thing. But we had, we had just sort of a normal developing friendship. And but working up the courage to to talk to him about Jesus was, you know, we were so used to talking about football and other things. It it was just kind of a hurdle. So I remember one time, finally, I I, I think I said to my wife, I'm like, OK, I just I finally got to just do this. I, I'm going to just go over to his house. The kids were home from school. He was home. I'm like, I'm just going to go over to his house uh, and, and knock on his door. And I and probably had been weighing on me for maybe uh, a week or two that I that I need to just say something to him. Uh, so I go over to his house and. And, you know, it's kind of an awkward conversation to start because it's like, hi, I'm just showing up at your doorstep. Uh, we usually talk at the bus stop, but um, and, and I forget what my what, what my uh, lead in was. So here I am all worried about what to say. And he says to me, as I'm, I'm saying I, something along the lines of, well, you know, I'm a pastor and I thought it would be important that I share this to you and, and your friend. And I just want you to know these things. And he's he looks at me and says to me. Yeah, I actually just accepted the Lord as my savior about two weeks ago. Um, it was it was amazing. It was it was the providence of God. It was some things that God was doing uh, in this uh, this man's life through his family, through his loved ones. His his wife went to a Baptist church. And, and I think we actually we actually had known that uh, and knew that she was a believer. Uh, and their their church had been praying for him uh, quite a bit. And he had been struggling with some alcoholism and, and stuff like that. And uh, God just opened his eyes and, and he just completely accepted the, the Lord Jesus Christ as his savior. He'd seen it in a way he'd never uh, seen it or understood it before. Just one of those things that, you know, it's the Holy Spirit. Um, but I learned something through that. Uh, here I was fearful of of what I would say to this man, almost as if it all depended upon me. And and I finally worked up the courage and and. God had already been at work. God had already done the work. I, I even felt a little bit embarrassed that I waited. Like, man, if I would have just got there two weeks earlier. Uh, but, you know, that wasn't God's timing. That, that was, you know, part of the plan and purpose of God as, as well. But we need to trust God. We need to trust God's plan and his purpose. And, and when, we, when we fear being evangelistic, we have to trust that God is the one that works and that God is at work. And, and particularly in my circumstances, with God laying a particular burden on on me for that man at that time was just another indicator of, of God being at work. Uh, it was it was really fascinating because then we would we, we had him over to the house. some. We'd occasionally have some some conversations. They, oftentimes they, the conversations would now turn to, to Christian things. Uh, he had a really good relationship with his pastor, but he'd also ask me some things. 
uh, once or twice he would say, well, my pastor says this. What do you say? And, uh, so so that put me in an awkward position. But thankfully, we we were both following the word of God. So he and his pastor, and my pastor agreed on just about everything. But uh, God was at work. And you need to believe that in evangelism, God is at work. Evangelism is effective. And this is our main point this morning. Evangelism is effective because God works through the message the evangelist brings. I think one of the reasons we often worry, well, two reasons we often worry is one, we often worry because we're thinking about ourselves. We're saying, you know, it's hard to, how am I going to start this conversation? What am I going to say? That can just be a little bit of fear. Uh, and, and I think in some ways it's, it's natural to have that hesitancy to just be like, how do I start this? But I think the other reason we have fear is we think it all rests on us. If I don't say this right, if I don't have the right thing, what if they walk away from God because of me and they never want to hear? What if I mess up and this person doesn't get saved? But God is the one that saves the sinner, not you. Yes, we need to be a, a faithful messenger, but, but God is the one who works. And as long as you, to, to the best of your abilities, are, are being faithful to the Scriptures, God will work. God will work according to His purposes. His Word will not return void. And you know what? Sometimes even we, we, we don't remember all the Bible verses we wish we would have. Or, or we walk away from a conversation and we say, Oh, if only I would have said this instead of that. Maybe that would have worked. You can't even trust God with those things. Sometimes we do say the wrong things or we say something maybe not as well as we could have. And God will still use it kind of in spite of who we are to remind us that it's not because of us ultimately that people get saved. We're just the servants. Paul says in first, uh, excuse me, in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How easy is it for us to fear being evangelistic? We need to remember what Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. I also want you to notice in this passage that in in Acts, Paul carries out his normal pattern of ministry. And that's this to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He goes into a city. He he goes to the synagogue first. And when they reject, then he goes on to the Gentiles. There's there's just a normal salvation history order. And, And what I mean by that is you think about the Old Testament and how much of it is primarily written to the Jewish people. They were God's chosen people. And God has a remnant from them that he is saving. But beyond that, God is taking the gospel to the whole world. So it is appropriate when Jesus came as the Messiah, the people that had the Old Testament that should have been expecting the Messiah, and in some cases were expecting the Messiah, it's appropriate that they hear first. There's a sort of logical order to it in the ministry of Paul. So we want to ask two questions this morning and then have a third thought as well. But the first question we want to kind of ask and answer from our passage in Acts is this. What is evangelism? What is evangelism? See, if you don't know what evangelism is, you won't know what you're doing or supposed to be doing. 
Uh, you won't know when you're getting it wrong. We, we have in our culture a whole lot of things that people assume inside the church are evangelism. That's not really evangelism. People will throw parties. They'll get together. They'll hang out with unbelievers. That's all great and good. But unless you have some conversations about the gospel, you haven't gotten to evangelism yet. You can hang out and use parties and get-togethers to to be a gateway to evangelism, and that's wonderful. But if all you do is say, I'm going to live with them, hang out with them, and then maybe one day they'll see Jesus in me, you haven't been evangelistic. What is evangelism? Evangelism is the ministry of the Word of God where we speak the truth about who Jesus is and what He has done. And then we call or invite people to believe. Let me say that again. Evangelism is the ministry of the Word of God. People aren't going to get saved unless you share something about the Bible, about what Jesus did on the cross and his death and resurrection. Evangelism is the ministry of the Word of God where we speak the truth about who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, He's God in the flesh. And what he's done, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And then we call or we invite people to believe. We ask for a response. We tell them Jesus has made the perfect payment for sin. You need to place your faith and trust in him and receive this forgiveness. He offers it to you, but if you do not accept it, you will not be saved. That's what evangelism is. Notice here, as we move through our passage in Corinth, Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla. Verse 1, 2, and 3. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla. When Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because they were of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So this actually gives us a a kind of a date. We know about when this happened. We know from other historical sources that that the emperor Claudius had kicked a Jewish people out of Rome in the city. And this happened in about A.D. 49. So 49 A.D. And uh, we have uh, from one of the Roman historians, Suetonius, he says, since the Jews constantly made disturbances by an instigation of Crestus, uh, he, meaning the emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. And Crestus is spelled C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. But a lot of scholars think that Suetonius misunderstood what was going on and he should have wrote Christus, meaning Christ. What a, a number of scholars think is that, that Jews from, from perhaps from the day of Pentecost had gone back to their house, homes. Some of them had gone back to Rome. They had gone to the synagogues. They had been uh, evangelistics in the synagogues. And it created such an uproar in the synagogues uh, in the city of Rome that Claudius just said, everybody out. We're done. Just just go. Uh, you Jews are fighting over stuff. We don't want to deal with it. Just leave. Uh, either way, this is the incidences that end up with Aquila and Priscilla being in Corinth. Then Paul will continue with his ministry. He continues to preach the gospel in the synagogues to Jews and Gentiles. Look at verse 4 and 5. And when he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied 
with the word testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. I want you to notice here. Excuse me, I want you to notice Paul's methodology methodology for evangelism. He goes where people are and he seeks to persuade them. That's it. He goes where people are and he seeks to persuade them. You don't need a, a fancy, snazzy course in evangelism. There aren't uh, 33 steps to how to be a good uh, evangelist. Now, it's good to get some training. It's good to study your word and, and be prepared. But, but when it comes to it, what, what do you need to do? You need to find some people and you need to share the gospel. You need to persuade them. You need to talk to them. Persuasion involves several things. You are, you are actively engaging them with words. It's, it's dialogue. It's, it's reasoning. You, you are making a case, if you will. This is what the Scriptures say. Or this is who you are. We are all sinners before God. In a Jewish context, he could have gone in and, and shared some of the Old Testament and says, this is what uh, the Messiah is, is said to be. Or what he will do. Let me tell you how Jesus actually did these things and actually for, fulfilled them. Persuasion seeks to make a compelling case. Now, you don't have to be fancy with your words. You don't have to be a really good public speaker to be persuasive. Because at the end of the day, it's the Word of God. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to call the sinner. But you do have to engage. You do have to, to dialogue. In other words, you, you can't just say, well, you know, my neighbor's an unbeliever, and if I shovel his driveway every winter when it snows, he'll come to Jesus. Well, he might see your kindness. And he might be interested. And that certainly would be a good way to, uh, pardon the pun, break the ice. But you still need to share the gospel. Persuasion is the opposite of emotional manipulation. Manipulation would be when you try to change someone's emotions so that they'll change their minds. Some public speakers will do that today. They, they will work the crowd up into a frenzy. They will they will play on your emotions, not in a not in a normal. The Holy Spirit is working and making you feel guilty sort of way, but but in a, in a human centered way. And then they'll say, why don't you accept Jesus? And the person without even thinking about it goes from this emotional high and they just pretend oftentimes to believe. And then they walk away and think, what what did I do? Do I really understand this? Persuasion is when you use the word of God to reach the mind and the Holy Spirit touches the heart. You share with someone the word of God and you say, this is what scripture says, that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever thought about your life? Do you, do you know what your sins are? Do you see how God is opposed to sin? You're making a persuasive case. And the Holy Spirit will change the heart. The emotions are involved. But you and I are not the manipulators. We're the ambassador. The faithful one bringing a message and sticking to the message. If you're not an exciting person, you can still be an evangelist. 
You don't have to be one of these people that that can walk into a crowded room and suddenly you are the life of the party and everyone comes around you and then and then be like, that's what an evangelist should be. And and if I could just do that, I could win the whole room. You can be very shy, very much afraid of talking to large groups of people. Maybe you hate public speaking. And you can sit down with a friend over a cup of coffee and be evangelistic. You can be very boring in your presentation and someone will still come to the gospel because it's the word of God that has persuaded them. And you've used the word of God and the Holy Spirit touched their hearts. Notice we also find then the content of Paul's message. It says in in verse um, uh, 5, it says he was testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So the Jews were expecting a Messiah, an, an anointed one, one chosen by God who would, would lead his people and would be a savior. And what Paul does is he demonstrates to them that the Messiah, this, this category that they already had an understanding of from the Old Testament, that this position is now taken up by Jesus. In other words, that Jesus is the Messiah. They were expecting a king. They were expecting God to raise up his anointed one. And unfortunately, a lot of times what they were also expecting is that he would have an earthly kingdom and defeat the Romans. So what Paul does is take him back to the Bible and he says, this is what the Messiah is. This is what the Messiah is going to do. And Jesus is the Messiah. He uses, for example, Psalm 2. Peter and Paul use Psalm 2 or Psalm uh, 8 or Psalm 110, where it talks about uh, the Lord Jesus being exalted up into heaven. We looked at Psalm 2 actually this morning in Sunday school, where it says the Lord sets his king on Mount Zion. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's a picture of installation. And how did God install Jesus as the king? He was crucified. He rose again from the dead. He ascended up into heaven. How do we know he's the Messiah? Because he fulfilled Psalm 2. He fulfilled 2 Samuel 7, 14, Psalm 110, verse 1, Psalm 110, all of Psalm 110, Psalm 110, verse 4, Psalm 8, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 45, Isaiah 53, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 9. He fulfills many, many of those things. And Paul reasons. Paul then also finds his message rejected and he shakes off his garments. Look at verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, uh, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on I will go to the Gentiles. Paul is both saying and demonstrating that they are now accountable to God. That they have heard the message and they are the ones that has rejected it. And, and he has not been unfaithful. It's between them and God now that they have rejected the, at this. Paul has been faithful to the message. Now, I'm not saying that when, when you try to evangelize someone and they don't accept uh, what you're saying, you know, don't get up from your little coffee date and like shake off your clothes and kick off your flip flops and shake them all out and huff out of there. But what I do think is you can be confident that you did what God 
wanted you to do. Keep praying for them. Keep praying that you've planted some seeds because you don't know how God will will use that. But you don't have to see yourself as a failure when if they don't believe the one time that you talk to them. In fact, oftentimes, it's not the first conversation where someone gets saved. Hey, the Holy Spirit can do whatever He wants. Sometimes it's, it is the first conversation. You share two verses and they're like, boom, I want to believe this. Other times it's a long, patient process. You might evangelize them. A friend of theirs might evangelize them. A loved one might evangelize them. You might evangelize them again. You might sit down and answer a few questions they have, a few hard things they're, they're dealing with. You might listen to them complain some. You might evangelize them again. God does the work. And God does the work on His timing. And you don't have to worry if you trust God. Paul holds them accountable before God and says it's between them and God now. He also goes out to the Gentiles. I'm not saying that this is an example of us, for us that we should give up on evangelizing people. Don't ever think just because they didn't respond the first time, you're done with them. But Paul does have a ministry in this entire city. And so now it's appropriate that he, that he shift his focus. Uh, there's a lot of different background material to this idea of shaking out the garments. Uh, it's interesting when you study it. Nehemiah does it. Nehemiah shakes out his garments in Nehemiah chapter 5 when, when Israel promises to do something. And, and basically he says, uh, So may God shake out every man from the house and from his labors who does not keep his promise. It's a way of, a way of holding them accountable. Uh, Ezekiel talks about, uh, God talks about in Ezekiel 33 that he's raised up Ezekiel as a watchman. And, and the imagery is, you think about an ancient city with a, a tower and, and, a, and a watchman stands on that tower. And if he sees an enemy coming, he, he shouts or he blows a trumpet or, or maybe in medieval times, you know, you ring the church bell really loud so everybody knows. The faithful watchman is the one that announces what's going to happen. And Ezekiel is told this, So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them the warning from me. Ezekiel 33, verses 3 and 4, speaking of this imagery. And if he sees the sword coming up upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet, does not take the warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own hand, head. Uh, in other words, you know, if if there's a fire and and everybody sounds the alarm and and they are ringing the bell and tooting the horn and the fire alarms are going off and you are sitting in the house that is burning and you hear the alarm and you say, Psh, oh, whatever, we practice this all the time. It's it's not real. You know, you smell the smoke and you're oh, it's getting hot in here. Oh, that alarm must just be malfunctioning. Maybe somebody's burning something in the kitchen. And you hear the alarm, and you sit there, and you do nothing. And the house burns down around you, and you burn down with it. It's your fault. Everybody warned you. Everybody said, hey, the house is on fire. Get out. The city is going to be overrun by an army. Get out. Hide. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. There's judgment coming if you stay in your sins. 
Repent, believe, receive the forgiveness of sins. And you sit where you are and you say, Nah, that's okay. I'm good. I'll just wait it out. You have no one to blame but yourself. This is what Paul is saying. When you're a faithful evangelist, when you're doing what God would have you do, don't beat yourself up. There will be people who respond by the grace of God. There will be people who you will just see the hardness of the human sinful heart. And our hearts should go out to that. We should feel sympathy and compassion. It should make us desire to be more evangelistic. But at the end of the day, don't beat yourself up with the wrong kind of guilt. Because you were the faithful watchman. You were the faithful messenger. That's our first application this morning. Evangelism is about being a faithful messenger. You're bringing God's word. We should realize that we cannot evangelize and speak of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ without calling people to repent. So when the watchman stands on the tower, he doesn't just announce what's happening. Oh, hey, look, there's some nice people coming over this mountain. Oh, they have swords and, and horses and an army. Well, isn't that sweet? You, you announce it. There's an urgency. Get out of here. We need to flee. If you're an evangelist, you need to call people to turn, to repent, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, don't just say, hey, there's this guy, Jesus. He's a nice guy. Would you like him? What does that mean? Jesus Christ died on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins. He rose again from the dead. You and I are sinners. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of your sins? He offers this free forgiveness. Have you taken it? Have you received it? So often in our day and age, I think we turn God and Jesus sort of into a Santa Claus. A nice guy. Chuckles at you. Wouldn't you like to have that guy in your life? Wouldn't you like to have a relationship with him? We do get to have a relationship with Jesus. But when you share the gospel, you have to share why. And you have to call people to repent. That's what evangelism is. Second, this morning, what is my motivation for evangelism? What is my motivation for evangelism? Well, I hope it's to see people get saved. But more importantly, to have a God-centered vision. God's... um, God will use evangelism to save the sinner. God will fulfill His eternal plan through evangelism. What is my motivation for evangelism? God will fulfill His eternal plan through evangelism. And God in His grace uses us along the way. You get a front row seat to seeing the eternal plan of God working itself out in the lives of individuals. The the first and primary motive for evangelism is to glorify God and see God work. The second motivation is to see sinners come and worship the living God. 
and be spared from the judgment that awaits them. But our primary motive is God first. Our secondary motive is to say God loves the sinner. And the sinner needs to turn and be saved. Keep both of those. You can't have one without the other. But keep them in the right order. Notice that despite a lack of response in our passage, we do have Titus and Crispus who respond. It says in verse 7 and 8, And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. It's interesting that we find out in 1 Corinthians 1 that that not very many of these people were actually baptized by Paul. And, And that becomes a good thing because later on in the church of Corinth, they start having these divisions. They start having these problems and and it's kind of like having your favorite pastor. And so some of the people were saying, I follow Paul. He's my guy. And others were saying, I follow Apollos. He's the real spiritual leader. And others were saying, I follow Cephas, which is another name for the Apostle Peter. And and it was sort of like dividing things up. It's kind of like, you know, today you can listen to a whole bunch of sermons from a whole bunch of godly pastors online. uh, And that's really, really good. But but we should never just be like divisive fanboys, you know, like I follow John MacArthur. Well, I follow John Piper. I mean, they're preaching the same gospel. In the same way, then Paul says this, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. This is in first Corinthians. And this is the the same Crispus mentioned here so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. In other words, so that no one could come along as a point of pride and say, well, you got baptized by this guy, but I got baptized by the Apostle Paul. That makes me higher up than you. You were baptized by that low guy down there. That makes me more important than you. It's funny that the church of Corinth had a lot of problems, to say the least. You read Corinthians and they got a lot of things wrong. But they were still believers. And God had still worked in their midst. Notice again, in the many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed, or excuse me, yeah, hearing Paul were believed and were baptized. Imagine what would have happened if Paul would have gotten discouraged and given up. Oh, these people in the, the synagogues, they, they just don't like me. I'm out of here. I'm moving on to the next town. God had a plan and Paul stuck with it. In ministry and in church life, we need to remember the importance of, of perseverance. You might share the gospel with a coworker and they might reject, but you don't sit there then and say, well, I'm never going to share the gospel ever again. Or I'm never going to share the gospel at work ever again. Or maybe even I'm never going to talk to that person ever again. Paul got kicked out of the synagogue and he went right across the street and kept doing what he was doing. And, and Titus Justus got saved. And Crispus got saved. Paul then receives encouragement from the Lord. Look at verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Notice the commands. Don't be afraid. 
Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Don't be afraid when you go to share the gospel. As God allows, go on speaking the truth. And don't be silent. No one ever gets saved if we say nothing. I should put that a little bit better. God uses the Word to save individuals. And we need to share the Word. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. There's a promise. For I am with you. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. This is the same promise that you and I have in the Great Commission. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'll look at you from way off and say, well done. No, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's three ways, I think, that God is with us when we evangelize. First, God is with us in the authority of the message. God is with us in the authority of the message. You are an authorized messenger of the King if you're bringing the Word of God. You see, when we preach the Gospel, when we preach from the pulpit, when we share the Gospel one-on-one with a friend, when we evangelize, We aren't to say what we want. We're to say what God says. A lot of times I feel like I'm repeating myself because we read the verse at the beginning and then every time we go through something, we read the verse again. We read the verse again. We read the verse again. I would never get invited to do a TED Talk. They'd think I'm boring. I just read from a book. But that's the point. We're preaching the Word of God. It's nice when you can have a creative illustration. It's nice when you can think of a cute story to tell someone to lead off your evangelism. But at the end of the day, the authority is from the Word. The way that God is with you is in the Word that you are bringing. You, you aren't going up to someone saying, well, you know, I, I have this thing I'd, I'd, I'd like to maybe sort of tell you. This is how it's made me feel over the years. You're going up to them with a measure of authority. You should be humble. But this is your authority. God's Word says Jesus died on the cross. God's Word says if you and I don't repent, we will be condemned. God's Word commands you need to repent. That's our authority. God is with us in that. Second, the Lord is with us in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers of the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That's a great verse. God will bring to mind the things you need to say. He is with you. The third way that the Lord is with you, is the Lord Jesus is just in your heart. He's there. You are in union and communion with Him if you are a believer. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
Yes, bodily, Jesus Christ is in heaven. But spiritually, He is being formed in you through the power of the Holy Spirit so that Christ is in you and you are in Christ. He can no more cut you off from Himself than He could cut off His own arm. And He's with you when you evangelize. Notice the last phrase. The last promise. For I have many in this city who are my people. The Lord isn't speaking here about people who are already saved. He's not speaking of of Crispus and, and Titus who just became believers. He's speaking of people that haven't yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have many in this city who are my people Acts chapter 13, verse 48 says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord when they heard the gospel. And it says, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The word, God will cause His word to be effective because He has chosen people for salvation by grace from before the foundations of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purposes of His will. God has a plan. And God works that plan out. It's an eternal plan from before the foundations of the world that there will be people who get saved. And guess what? He uses you and I as the evangelist. You see, Paul didn't just hear these words, for I have many people in this city who are saved or who are my people. And he didn't just like, you know, sit back and and kick up his feet and say, well, okay, God, just go and do whatever you want then. I'm I, I don't have to do anything. Paul was called to be the evangelist. He was the one whom God was going to use as the outworking of this. But Paul could go with boldness because God was going to save people. How did God know He was going to save people? Because He planned it before the foundations of the world. You and I don't know who that was or who it will be. We just take the message to everybody. But you know what? If evangelism relied on your strength and my strength, how many people would get saved? I mean, if it was up to me to save somebody, you know, like drag them into church and force the word into them and and, and change their hearts and take them here to the baptismal and slam them down and dunk them. You're in now. You know, if it was up to me to save somebody, Nobody would get saved. If it was up to me to change somebody's heart, if it was up to my persuasive abilities, nobody would get saved. But God saves people. And God has a plan. And He's going to work it out. You can be confident when you evangelize. You don't know if the person in front of you will get saved or not. You don't know when they'll get saved even if they get saved. But you know that God has a plan. And if you just keep putting the word out there, 
God will take it and he will do what he wants with it and he will accomplish his purpose. It's one of the few things in life that you can do and you can know it will be effective according to the will of God. Not that you'll get what you want, but that God will do what he sees fit. And in that respect, we can't fail. If we are using the word of God, God will do what he sees fit. And it should encourage us. It should be joyous. God really has people out here who are going to hear the gospel and they're going to believe and God knows it. And I can just go out and share. And I can keep sharing. Because God will work. When we evangelize then, be be confident that God will accomplish His purposes. You'll notice how God says no one will be able to harm you. Don't be afraid. And then people try to harm Paul. And what does God do? God does what he promised he would do. I love, I love how it says uh, in verse 14. Okay, so they bring this in. Verse 13, they say, This man is persuading the people to worship God contrary to the law. And it says in verse 14, But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, I love it because, you know, that would that would be I could see myself doing that. Like, hey, whoa, how dare you bring me in here and charge me of this? Oh, time out. This is a false charge. This is wrong. I'm not. You know, I'd want to defend myself. I'd want to jump on here and say, whoa, let's not punish me here. I haven't broken any laws. God uses the unbeliever the civil justice here to defend Paul before Paul could even say anything. You want to know how we know that God is keeping his promise here? Paul, even before he could speak up, has someone speaking up and vindicating him and protecting him. God keeps his word. God keeps keeps his word. Proverbs 21, 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water, and in the hand of the Lord he turns it wherever he wills. Why is it that Gallio had a favorable disposition towards Paul? God granted it to the ruler. God was so in control of those circumstances that Gallio saw right through what these Jewish people were trying to do. There's a lot of other verses in the New Testament that we could connect to this. First Peter tells us that we should keep doing good so that the rulers will see our good deeds and they will glorify God in the day of judgment or in the day of visitation. It's the will of God that we should keep doing what is good and that we might silence ignorance and foolish people. But in this passage, notice that God kept his word. God's promise here to Paul wasn't that Paul would never have suffering and persecution, just that he wouldn't have it in Corinth. Paul later on says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, 
that they also may obtain salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. The Word of God is not bound when we share the Word. The Scriptures say that God's Word will accomplish His purposes and it will not return void. It's not bound. And Paul can later in his life say, I am willing to suffer. I am willing to be persecuted. You can say in our day, I am willing to be made fun of. I am willing to maybe have some people mock me because I know the Word of God won't be bound and God has a people whom He will save. That's what Paul says. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I think Paul had learned this throughout his ministry, perhaps even Acts being one of the places that he learns this, that God had many people in that city. And now later on, years down the road, when Paul is in chains, perhaps in Rome or maybe in chains in Ephesus, Paul can say, I'm going to endure this because God's word won't be bound and God still has many people in this city or in the cities beyond this. Brother and sisters in Christ, trust God. Trust God in your evangelism. Even if you make a poor effort, a poor attempt. We've all had conversations where we, where we feel like we didn't say enough. If only I'd used that Bible verse or said more. But trust that God can use even our most feeble Attempts. It's like the soccer coach or the football coach where you mess up a play and you come back in and the coach says, but you tried. You tried. Now get out there and do it again. We'll get it this time. God can use even the evangelism efforts where we fail. We didn't say it right. We didn't say enough. We didn't remember our verses But we get out there and we do it again because God has many people who he is bringing to salvation. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us today. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would just have many people in York, in York County, in Pennsylvania, in the world that you would bring to salvation. Help us even right here in our circles, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our, in our uh, work relationships. Help us to bring the gospel into conversation, to share with what, them what Jesus has done. Maybe it's not all in one conversation, but a series of small conversations over time. But give us that courage. And, O oh Lord, we pray according to your will that you would bear fruit. Because you are patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And you even have, as you've said, a people, elect from for the foundations of the world. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would enhance the gospel in our midst and beyond. Glorify your name. Do good for the sake of your glory and for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. We're going to close in a worship song this morning.
continue to cultivate and stir in us a hunger for that grace. We thank you for the grace that you have so richly uh, lavished upon us. Where our sins abounded, grace abounded all the more. We praise you for the wonderful mystery of that grace that was at no cost to us, but it cost the Lord Jesus Christ his own life on the cross of Calvary. Oh Lord, we pray that you would continue to watch over us. Keep us safe during the week. May we glorify your name in the way that we live and behave. Draw us back into the family of God to worship you again uh, in your presence with God's people. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.